0: Well, hi, I'm Charles van Weyck. Great to be with you on Salt and Light again. Thank you for tuning in. We are going to be speaking about the issue, what if Jesus had never been born? We are leading up to Christmas in our calendar month, and we are excited about this. It's a wonderful time of the year. Everybody is getting ready for a wonderful day, uh, depending on their The details of dealing with their family lockdowns, but otherwise spending time with family, having lots of food together, having a lot of fun. We're speaking to Dr. Peter Hammond in the studio today. Peter, welcome to Salt and Light. Thank you, Sean. It's a great season. Love the Christmas season. We are talking about the fact of Jesus Christ, his impact on the world. What would the world have looked like without him? Many people around the world would be really happy if there was no Jesus Christ born into the world. But let us start with something really simple. The, the time of Christmas, getting together, family, friends, gifts. Are we, are we way offline as Christians celebrating this great day of the birth of Christ?
1: No, I don't believe so. Although, of course, I'm well aware of the arguments. There's a lot of people very anti-Christmas. And some seem to have some good reasons until you start to actually look into it but uh, they're the Grinches and there's the Scrooges and there's people who even from sincere Christian perspectives are saying no it's completely pagan we should have nothing to do with it and look obviously there's a secularizing of Christmas there's a paganizing of Christmas there's the hijacking of Christmas and Christmas in our view has got nothing to do with Santa Claus and it's got nothing to do with drunkenness and uh, there's a lot of, let's face it, excesses. But just because something gets abused doesn't mean one cannot seek to remind people for the reason for the season and that wise men seek Christ. And bear in mind, he is the most important event to have ever happened in history, the birth of Christ, because it's split time. The way you date everything is affected by the birth of Christ, the incarnation, God is becoming man, Emmanuel, God with us. The fact that you write the date 2020, 2020 what? 2,020 years since the coming of Christ. In fact, the fact that even an atheist has to acknowledge Christ every time he writes the date.
0: Just through our calendar.
1: Whether he likes it or not. What other event or person affected the way we date time? Jesus Christ alone affected the calendar. I mean, if Jesus hadn't come, you can be sure this wouldn't be the year 2020. Well, just well
0: one us. never really thinks about this, but it makes complete sense um, that Jesus Christ, his birth is what we base our whole calendar on. Uh, but this is also under attack, isn't it? I mean, Ooh. we're finding people don't want to talk about before Christ or... Yes.
1: Well, you can see a lot of things like they're trying to come out with... But even this BCE and CE, uh, yes. even then, they're still using the same dating. Whether they want to call it oh, something That's else, right. They're not changing
0: the dates. It, they it's...
1: still can't change the calendar. The calendar yes. is set on the birth of Christ, the incarnation. He is the one who determined how our dates work. And it's Obviously, there's no other person or life or event so important that has affected the calendar for the last 2,000 um, and 20 years. And it's a phenomenal impact. Even the fact that we have a seven-day week. Why? God created the world in six days, rested in the seventh. Why have we moved from the Jewish seventh-day Sabbath to the Christian Lord's Day first-day Sabbath? Because Jesus rose from dead on the first day of the week. we are celebrating that. Yes. So we've moved from celebrating creation to celebrating recreation and the resurrection. So all over you see the fingerprints of God. Even the fact that you have a term like holiday, which comes from Holy Day. Holy day. Oh, there or, we go. Or the fact that in English we say goodbye. That's strange spelling. Where does that come from? It's the old English prayer, God be with you. Oh. God be with you has been abbreviated to goodbye. And in Germany uh, and Austria and Switzerland, they still have, for example, in Austria, "Gruß Gott, which means greetings and God, how they greet people. And in Switzerland, it's been abbreviated to Grutzi, which is a shortened version, like we have goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um. They will have greetings in God, and, uh, and we literally have all these fingerprints of Jesus all over the He's place. Saying blessings
0: th- over each other.
1: Yes. And Christmas, the Christ festival, the Christ festival, and we're celebrating his birthday. In fact, it's not a bad idea to even say in the middle of all the press and everything of the Christmas season, saying, Do you remember whose birthday we're celebrating? And some people have to think for a moment, and then you might say, Now, it's not our birthday. Why do we receive gifts on Christmas Day? Just to get people thinking about what is the origin and the source yes. and the inspiration for well, all these festivals?
0: What is the real essence of Christ coming? I mean, what what is singularly the most important issue that that you'd say? Well, the fact that God has not
1: left us alone. God has come into the world. He has become one of us. He was born of a virgin, of the Virgin Mary. In a stable in Bethlehem, he came to live the perfect life we had failed to live, and he came to die the sinless death we deserve to die. So when I look at Christmas, I think uh, Martin Luther used the Christmas tree as an analogy. He says, when you look at the tree, the wood should remind you of the wood of the crib, that our Savior came from heaven and was born in a humble little wooden crib in a farm store. In a cave. <laughs> there was no room for him in the inn. There was no room for him in any of the homes or inns of Bethlehem. Uh, he wasn't born in the temple, he wasn't born in the palace, he's born in a humble stable. But the wood of the crib should remind you of the wood of the cross. He mm. came to die. But you notice that the tree has presence around it. This reminds us of the gifts of the spirit. You notice it's got decorations that reminds us of the fruit of the spirit. And the fruit is always for the benefit of others. You notice that the tree has got gold decorations on reminding us that he who came through the crib and was destined to die on the cross he is coming back then wearing the crown because he's the king of kings and lord of lords the first time he came as the lamb of god to die for the sins of the world the next time he comes he will not come as a lamb he's going to come as a lion
0: he, and peter better, peter people better be ready for that well
1: they will not have any choice then Right now, the door to grace is open. The door mm. to heaven is wide open. Whoever will may come. Mm. And uh, the Lord says, take my yoke upon you. for My yoke is light and easy. Come unto me, all you weary and heavy laden. And so right now, the door to heaven is wide open. The door of grace is wide open. And God is saying, come. But when he comes again, the door to heaven will be closed. The door of grace, the day will be over. And then it will be a time of judgment. So the question is not, will you bow to Christ? But when will you bow to Christ? Will you bow to him as Savior and Lord today or as eternal judge then? But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I think the wood of the crib, the wood of the cross, and the gold of the crown, crib, cross, crown, that in some ways summarizes Fascinating. Christmas.
0: Fascinating. He, he came to save us. Our eternal destiny is at stake or in his hands, either way, and um, And yet, people are saying that um, once one looks at the spiritual life and our salvation, there has to be a practical application too. So, So did Jesus, through his coming, make a difference in education, as an example? Wow. Yes, indeed. Completely. Because before the coming of Christ... Education
1: was only for the very elite and then only males anyway. And so not even four or five percent of the total population would have known how to read or write or have any education at all. There was certainly no schools for girls. and There was no such thing as universities. There's no such thing as, as uh, universal education. That came about because of Christ's great commission. Our Lord taught and then he commanded his handpicked followers to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all things he had commanded. And as a result, Christians have been the forefront of education, not just education for the priests, the pastors, the leaders, or the kings and their sons and the princes, but for everyone, and also for girls and for women, which is completely unique, a Christian innovation. And uh, in fact, there's a a Jewish man who is an atheist, uh, Samuel Blumenfeld, who's a major educationalist, and he said when he started to investigate education, he found that all roads lead back to the Reformation and from the Reformation to Jesus Christ. And that education, universal education, is a uniquely Christian, in fact, Protestant reality. And it comes from the teachings of Christ to make disciples and teach obedience to all things. And he said it led him from being an atheist to becoming a Christian. So Samuel Blumenfeld has written a lot of great books on education, and he was inspired by the fact that actually, without Christianity, there wouldn't be universal education or universal literacy.
0: That, that is uh, unbelievable to think that the impact is so uh, massive, you know, worldwide and generational. It's not just something you know it only affected people at the time of Christ, but that it's been going on for generations for Christians to make a difference. I want to look at something completely uh, radical and maybe off the wall. But you've been shot at, bombarded with. Um, all sorts of bombs and things in behind enemy lines and in front of enemy lines in war zones in Africa. Did Jesus Christ impact the way we fight as Christians? Oh, there's no doubt, because
1: warfare before the time of Christ was brutal, sadistic, no prisoners unless they were going to be made slaves, and women and children were routinely made slaves of the conquered nations, and atrocities, and wiping out everyone in the town, such as the conquering of Troy, very uh, evil, shocking. There was no mercy, just no mercy at all. And uh, so if you were part of a defeated army or defeated people, you could the best you could expect was the rest of your life in slavery. So the fact that Christ came, and what he taught about loving your enemies, and being gracious to your defeated enemies, and loving your neighbors, and doing to others you want to be done unto, led to an injection of some compassion and mercy and grace which had never been seen before. So uniquely in Christian nations, you start to have the just war theory and you've got to have exhausted all possible uh, peaceful means before going to war. It's got to be a last resort. It must be defensive. And then they came out with Christian principles like the Geneva Conventions and the Hague Rules on Warfare, which included things that, oh, it would have been nice if they followed this in the 20th century, but that you did not target civilians, and you did not uh, target churches or cultural centres or schools, and uh, civilians were to be protected. And prisoners were to be given uh, prompt medical care and uh, given the same amount of food and uh, clothing and access to good uh, protection from the elements. So, in fact, you saw Christian nations started to wage war in a far more limited way, and war is bad enough. Sure. But to inject some mercy and grace and that a captured prisoner could generally... In when Christian nations were involved, expect decent treatment and to get home and see their
0: family again afterwards. This is only came from Christianity. You didn't get this from Islam or
1: Buddhism or Hinduism. Or yes. like
0: so have you seen this in your ministry in the past, in working in different war zones in Africa as a as an evangelist, as a missionary, uh, making a difference there, helping people? Have you physically seen this being worked out by any chance anywhere along
1: well, sadly, in a lot of Africa, you n- normally get viciousness, targeting of civilians, sure. where the civilians are the main target. And of course, that's communist. That's from the atheist mindset. Uh, my father said during the Second World War in North Africa, and here's all six years, involved in the Eighth Army North Africa, Italy. And he said there would be a ceasefire on Christmas even Christmas Day, we'd actually often go out and play soccer with Africa Corps, and they'd be swapping of ration packs and showing pictures of your family. And it was this, because we'd sing Silent Night together, and uh, they'd sing in German, we'd sing in English, and he said they were gentlemen, they were decent people, and there was compassion, and you'd often have that they were treating our wounded in the no man's land, we were treating theirs, we'd be walking past one another after battle, and it was a compassion. For example, uh, you'd get Marseille, one of the great German fighter aces who had 150 air victories. If he shot down a British pilot and uh, he knew, or in many cases it was Rhodesian and South African, actually, mm. in North Africa, uh, he would actually send information that would go where the man went down so that if it was on the other side that they could get help to him and uh, if it was on German side, they'd that, that, um, immediately be sending out people to help because they knew the desert elements and that heat thirst, you could die in such a short time uh, without water and access to medicines. So uh, there was this compassion for the other side, which, and, and my father said, we felt more compassion for our enemies than we did for our families and politicians back home who'd sent us here and put us in harm's way, because they were fighting the same elements we were, the heat and the dust and the dirt and the, and the sun and the thirst, and he said, uh, because there were Christians on both sides, there was a compassion. Now, I don't think in the wars in Africa you've seen that much because you've often got atheists or animists uh, on the other side or those with pagan religions. But when they're Christians on both sides, the whole attitude changes.
0: It's amazing to hear that kind of thing. And this is literally in some of us. It's happened in our lifetime that we've had this sort of um, movement from almost a gentleman's Christian perspective in that world to um, you know absolute chaos under certain circumstances. And... Uh, Either way, but there again, you know, our biblical worldview, which comes through Christ, um, that impact is... You can't believe that it actually can make a difference in war zones. But then, what about the poor? What about economics? Um, So many people look at us. I, I literally had a conversation with an atheist on one occasion, and he said to me, "I'm," he says, our people are suffering. We don't have jobs. We don't have food to put on our tables. And he said... I used to be a Christian, but I don't believe in Christ anymore because the teachings of the Bible and of Christ doesn't affect us in any way. It doesn't affect our circumstances. We're poor people and nobody's helping. The Christians aren't helping. So economics, the poor, did Christ impact that world?
1: Enormously. There was no concept of charity before the time of Christ. The whole idea of charity or benevolence and kindness to strangers is a uniquely Christian concept. It was completely unknown before the time of Christ. And so the teachings and example of Jesus Christ have inspired the greatest acts of generosity and hospitality and self-sacrifice and service for the poor, the sick and needy over 2,000 years. In fact, if, when I walked into the uh, headquarters and the museum for the greatest humanitarian organization on earth, the International Committee for the Red Cross in Geneva... First exhibit, the Bible of Henry Dunant, who founded the Red Cross. And it has this Bible-inspired, the International Committee for the Red Cross. And then it's got the teachings of Jesus on the parable of the Good Samaritan, and love your neighbor, and go and do likewise, and heal the sick, uh, and uh, care for the poor, and all the teachings of Christ from Sermon on the Mount, even love your neighbor. So these verses are there in the International Committee for the Red Cross Museum, and this organization is basically secular these days and yet in the museum they recognize the Christian evangelical roots and even mm. the scriptures themselves, quoting from Jesus Christ, you know, quoting from where it came from Matthew, it's in the exhibits there and, and that's honest because that's true. You would, Where on earth would you have gotten the inspiration to be kind to even your enemies and to strangers? Only from Jesus Christ. People who love Christ and have been regenerated by him have been the most generous. And in fact, all charities will admit that they receive vastly more donations in kind and in finances over the Christmas season than any other time of the year. And some say they receive more donations in the Christmas season than in all other months of the year combined.
0: More in one month than the other 11 months.
1: That is it. That's Fascinating.
0: Fascinating. but. Jesus Christ has, has had a massive impact on our world. We've been speaking about uh, lots of different facets. Uh, how about the world of politics or government? One would literally look at that and say, well, Christ came to save us. It was a spiritual salvation. Is there any impact in the world of governance?
1: Enormously. Just take Jesus' teaching that the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. The greatest amongst you should be like the youngest. And, should, and the one who serves should be, the one who rules should be like the one who serves. And so Jesus in Matthew 20 and Luke 22 makes it clear that a, a ruler in the civil sphere is to be the servant. And this is where the concept comes from of a civil servant. And in fact, the term cabinet minister and prime minister comes from that concept of servant because what is a minister? It's another word for servant. In fact, the same word is used in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, uh, and in in, uh, Matthew 20 and Luke 22, servant, deacon. The same word used in the church for a deacon who serves in the church. So the man in society who is to be a ruler is to be a civil servant. He's to be a civil deacon. He's to be, um, as the minister in the church, is to be the minister of grace, The minister in the state is to be a minister of justice. And it's for this reason that you have a prime minister in Britain, for example, meaning the first servant. And I remember receiving, maybe you did too, in the old days, letters from a cabinet minister signed, Your Humble Servant. Mm. Now, that's uniquely Christian. Now, I know that these days a lot of our politicians are hardly humble, nor are they servants, and the thought probably hasn't crossed their mind to be a servant. But for centuries, the concept of, of government being civil servants comes from teaching of Jesus. But not only that, his teaching on the depravity of man has led to the principles of checks and balances and limited power. And Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. Hmm. And so Jesus reminded all authority comes from God. It's limited, it's delegated, and it's answerable to God. One day you will stand before Almighty God, the eternal judge, and give an account of how you've ruled, whether you're a judge in the court or a prime minister, president, a cabinet minister, member of Parliament, city council, whatever it is, you will give an account to God. And this has of course put some fear and responsibility and restraint on, on civil governments. And it's for this reason that the Protestant reformers in particular brought about separation of powers to a unique extent. So in South Africa, we have our legislative capital in Cape Town, we have Parliament, we have our executive capital in Pretoria, that's where union buildings are, and we have our judicial capital in Plumford, that's where the High Court is. Now, Why did we separate our three branches of government over 1,500 kilometres? And for that matter, why have we separated geographically? Why have we separated at all? Well, this is a uniquely Protestant concept that in the Bible, we read that, and there's a famous Christmas verse, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his governance and peace, there will be no end. Now notice, the government will be upon Christ's shoulder. Now what does this mean? Well, he's the real government. He's the capital G government. He's the one who determines when the sun rises, when it sets, whether you live or die, how you die, Mm -hmm. where you go after you die. Uh, He is the one who makes the rain to fall and the ground to produce food. And so the real government is God, ultimate government. But... He has delegated some tasks: self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. All answerable to God, all delegated, all limited. But we also read in Isaiah thirty-three, verse twenty-two, that the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. And so we see God has revealed His government in executive, legislative, judicial, and For this reason that's why britain switzerland protestant countries separate their powers into you've got the executive branch of government you've got the legislative always an upper and lower house because in israel you had the upper house which was hereditary the lower house which was elected and then you had the judiciary which is separate and so in switzerland and south africa we geographically separated these branches of government i know that this frustrates communists who want centralized control But it's a purpose of limiting and having checks and balances. And this flows from the biblical teaching of depravity of man, holiness
0: of God, and the Trinitarianism of dividing government into three parts. This is so encouraging to hear, this impact. It's just uh, actually unbelievable (laughs) because one doesn't learn about these things in your normal educational process of studying anymore. Um, And it it just seems so unique um, that it's it's almost unbelievable the impact of Christ on us. What, Um, well, let's let's go back to Scripture. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. Therefore, we must go make disciples of the nations. Now, we are big in church planting. Um, Christians have been doing that all over the world with uh, local churches springing up all over the world. Are they making a difference in their spheres of influence? Well, yes. yes, according to us being called to make disciples of the nations. Certainly, the churches are doing
1: phenomenal work, some better than others. And of course, it depends how deep you go. Sometimes the criticism is many churches are miles wide and inches deep. And uh, obviously, I think the church has done a better job of evangelism and not as good a job of discipleship. And in many cases, many local churches, they aren't doing enough of studying the whole counsel of God and applying the Lord of Christ to all areas of life, including economics, crime and punishment, entertainment, judiciary, everything. And that's what we should do. The whole church should be taking the whole gospel to the whole world. And in many cases, what you've got is some parts of the church taking some of the gospel to some of the world. So we can certainly improve. We can definitely improve. In previous generations, the church has had a better impact because you can see uh, 19th century missionary movement. They converted cannibals. Kings bowed down to Christ. Whole nations were converted. Phenomenal expansion of the gospel. 20th century, we've been pretty good at increasing numbers, but the quality and impact seems to have gotten a lot less. The,
0: the depth is mm. not there.
1: And part of it is not as great a concept of God. And in many ways, God has been almost reshaped in our mind. And uh, The church has gone from seeking to worship and serve God to mostly, what can God do for me? Health and wealth, name it, claim it, and frame it, shallow, superficial, selfish, materialistic, prayer of Jabez, bless me kind of... Now, that's a bit of a distortion of the gospel. That's not the real... That's not a book of Acts Christianity, that's not what you see in the epistles. So uh, some churches are having a great impact, others I'm afraid are maybe having a negative impact. But the fact is the church is growing worldwide, we need a back to the Bible reformation and a spiritual revival for the church to appreciate its heritage and also to communicate the whole counsel of God. How many churches are Great Commission churches making disciples, teaching obedience to all things the Lord has commanded? So obviously, this is why we need biblical worldview seminars and summits, and why we need people to really get back into studying every book of the Bible.
0: Well, you're going to be running a summit pretty soon. Um, What is it about, are the issues we've been discussing today part of the training, part of the worldviews, part of the ideas that will be taught? Very much so, because... Biblical Worldview Summits are
1: great fun, and it's body, mind, and spirit, and it's not only important lectures with guest speakers from around the world and so on, but it's lots of team-building, practical discussions, obstacle-crossing, problem-solving, interactive, including getting folks on the streets and doing actual outreaches, which some say afterwards is the highlight of the whole thing. Yes. Amazing how many people put PT and outreaches as the highlights of <laughs> the campus, which you wouldn't think everyone would say, but it, its I think because it's so unique. Many camps are just about how to have fun. Ours are far more than that. This is a lot of fun, but it's body, mind, and spirit. And we help people to know what they believe, why they believe it, how to defend an argument, and how to win your friends and neighbors to Christ.
0: And when and where is this taking place? So from
1: the 4th to the 11th of January, it's going to be near Hermanus. Uh, we've got a new campsite, uh, which has got direct access to sea, great obstacle course, excellent facilities and uh, very nice uh, facilities in every way. So we've got people planning to come from all over the country and maybe some from even overseas. We know that travel's not as easy these days, but for those of us in the Cape, it's not a problem. So if they can contact mission at frontline.org.za, or go on our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org, and you'll see under events right at the bottom of the page, uh, Biblical Worldview Summit, click on, you'll see some videos, links, details, how to apply, it's one week from the 4th, Monday the 4th to Monday the 11th of January. Well,
0: very exciting. I highly recommended course. Many of our youth or leaders uh, in our ministry in Cape Town have done this training. Very, very exciting. They've loved every minute of it, except some didn't like the PT that much. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, there we go. Peter, thank you very much. Uh, last question as we close off our um, time together you've written extensively um, on lots of different topics any books that come to mind that one can consider oh, on this topic of today
1: yes i would highly recommend dr james Kendi wrote the book what if jesus had never been born what a great book one of the best books i've read one of the most important books written uh, in the last century what if jesus never been born and there's also one hour dvd where james Kennedy takes every attack on jesus christ and Judo throws it into... Demolishes it. Basically shows that, in fact, everything good in the world is a result of Jesus Christ, his teaching, and his example. And it's phenomenal. It's so inspiring. So what if Jesus never been born? There's a book. There's a film. They can get from Christian Liberty Books. Absolutely outstanding. And I've written a tract, summarizing all this, uh, called what, The Greatest Man Who Ever Lived. And it was designed for Christmas. It's a tract. It's in English. It's in Afrikaans. You can get it free off our website, FrontlineMissionEssay.org. Look for the tract's And there you can download. In fact, we've got a whole lot of things just to do with Christmas as well. But The Greatest Man Who Ever Lived points out that everything good in our world is a direct result of the teaching of Jesus Christ and his example.
0: Thank you very much, Peter. We've been speaking to Dr. Peter Hammond, founder of Frontline Fellowship, um, author of multiple books and leaflets and tracts and uh, lots of information on the internet for you to read that Peter's written. Peter, thank you for being with us in the studio and for a most interesting program. Thank you so much, Joel. I'm Charles van Bake, closing off.